0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome our guest, the amazing Lord Freeman Esquire, to the guest chair today as we talk about the work of Chief Diversity Officers. Some people have referred to Lord as being a Renaissance man, but more formally, Lord is a partner and Chief Diversity Officer at Archer Law Firm. He concentrates his practice in the area of commercial and complex civil litigation. In state and federal courts in both New Jersey and Pennsylvania, as Chief Diversity Officer, Lord carries out the firm's vision to grow diversity and inclusion in the legal profession, as well as implements policies and procedures and fosters programs to promote diversity through the firm. He would probably want me to mention that he's a proud member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity, Incorporated, and an Archon of the Delta Epsilon Boulay of Sigma Pi Phi Fraternity, Incorporated. Mr. Lord Freeman, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you for having me, Oscar. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Yogurt stands for Yogurt Made Better. Our product is a pure, whole milk, creamy yogurt drink made with real fruits and no artificial preservatives. Yogurt only includes grade A, all natural ingredients. Please visit our website at www.yogurtyogurts.com. That's Y-O-B-E-R, yogurts.com. Also, visit us on Instagram at yogurt Yogurts. Please join us to make a difference by sharing this delicious yogurt and supporting your local family farmers. I met Lloyd my first year moving to New Jersey, which was in 2013. So we've known each other for about seven years now. And in that time, I can say that I have been completely blown away by how civically involved Lloyd is in the community, particularly when you know how professionally successful he is. And on top of that, he is an amazing family man. So in thinking about the important topics I wanted to cover in this inaugural season of Diversity Matters, I knew that I had to get Lloyd on to talk about the important work he does as a chief diversity officer. So Lloyd knows that I have much respect for him and really appreciate the partnerships we've had over the years. And I'm really honored that you took time out of your busy schedule to join us for this inaugural season of Diversity Matters. So let's get started. You have a successful legal career. And as I mentioned in your bio, you're a partner at a major law firm. Can you share with our listeners your journey into how you ended up taking on this additional role as Chief Diversity Officer? You know, what does your role entail and what is a typical day like for you?
1: Sure. So the role of chief diversity officer is not one that I was actually seeking. It came to me, and it's because there had been a trend in law firms for about the last three to five years in naming chief diversity officers. And our firm president, he literally just came to my office one day and talked to me about wanting to kind of reorganize the firm and to create this new position and that I was the man for the job. I didn't really argue with him because, number one, I knew that the role sounded amazing and I wanted to take it. But I just have such a personal story that's so connected to diversity and inclusion, and I know that just me becoming an attorney and let alone a partner at Archer wouldn't be possible if it were not for diversity. So just to give you a little bit of background, when I was a law student at Rutgers Law School, I was a diversity scholarship recipient. The diversity scholarship was underwritten by Archer Law Firm. So not only did that afford me the ability to, of course, finance my legal education, but it also came with a summer associate position, which is essentially an internship. And so after my second year at Rutgers Law School, I joined the firm as a summer associate and I gained an offer for full-time employment. And I started off at the firm right after graduation, and I have gone all the way from summer associate to partner, and I'm actually the first person of color to do so at my firm. So Knowing already my personal attachment to diversity and inclusion programming and how I have truly been a success story for showing how diversity and inclusion programming works, I think that was a bit of the motivation behind my firm's management in naming me to this role. Not to mention, I had been a champion of diversity for years, right? So I have been on the diversity committee for years, and I had launched our affinity group back in 2012. So it had certainly been something that everyone knows is very near and dear to my heart. And that really just made me so absolutely excited. And I gave them an emphatic yes when I was asked to take on the role. But because I was in the first person to be the chief diversity officer of my firm, I was afforded the wonderful opportunity to write my own job description. And that has been perfect because it kind of ties into me creating my own strategic plan for diversity at the firm. And so essentially, my my goal as CDO is to ensure that uh, diversity and inclusion remains a cornerstone of our firm. I always say that I want diversity to be woven into the fabric of everything that we do. But I really want to focus in on those really important decisions that we make as a firm. So in our hiring, our promotion, our staffing and compensation, I want to make sure that we don't make any of those major decisions without diversity being something that's brought up at the decision making table. And so to monitor this, I am on all those important committees at the firm. I'm on the personnel committee. I'm on the hiring committee. I'm on the business development committee. And of course, I chair diversity and inclusion. And so that way, you know, I don't just have a proverbial, you know, seat at the table. I am literally at the table when all of those decisions are being made. Right. I think you also ask about a typical day, which that changes so much because I am still practicing law. So aside from managing my general caseload, I make sure that I hold one on one meetings with our women and with our diverse attorneys in the firm, just checking in with them. How are things going? You know, we have nine offices at Archer, all the way from Uh, well, D.C. now all the way up through to New York. And it's very hard for me, you know, not being there to know what problems they're facing. Are they getting enough work? Are they really getting those good opportunities to let them grow in their careers? But I just want to let them know that they have an advocate. And so not only do I travel around to those different offices, but I also just check in with them on -on one-on-one meetings virtually. I'm also checking and managing our diversity initiatives that we have cultivating
0: partnerships.
1: And then also, you know, I carve out some time for thought leadership, for writing articles, speaking on panels and recording podcasts.
0: (laughs) Right. Clearly you are doing an excellent job as an attorney and a CDO for your firm. But as you mentioned, this is a role that you share with your other duties. Do you think it's more effective to have this kind of paired role? In organizations, or do you think it may be more effective for organizations to name a chief diversity officer, and that be that person's sole role to do in that organization?
1: I've thought about this a lot, and you know, I think it depends on the industry. And so, I'll speak specifically from the law firm perspective. I think it is important for you to have someone either who is currently, you know, a practicing attorney, so currently a partner, or someone who at least has a JD. Because in order to to really understand what are the issues that someone faces as they're trying to rise through the ranks of the law firm, as they're trying to attract new business, um, as they're trying to go up for partner, et cetera, it really helps for you to have that really personal frame of reference and to be able to know exactly what that process entails. And not to mention that if you are still a partner, a practicing attorney, you're still a revenue generating person for the firm. And so we have to understand, of course, that a business is here to make money. And so when you're able to be someone who is also still bringing in money to the business, not to mention you're also trying to push the needle on diversity and inclusion, I feel like you do carry a bit more gravitas in what you say because you are someone who is still very critical to the firm's bottom line.
0: So in comparison to most other executive level roles, we know that the role of the chief diversity officer is relatively new. People come to it via many different routes, so this can be a good thing or a bad thing. But fundamentally, what types of experiences and or what kinds of competencies do you think chief diversity officers should have to be, quote unquote, qualified for the role? And what responsibilities and tasks should they have under their purview when they actually get in the role?
1: I think that you have to be innovative. We're doing these roles as chief diversity officers or just diversity professionals in general without a blueprint. As you mentioned, these are normally some very new positions in organizations, and so You're going to be doing a bit of trial and error there. You're not sure if your new ideas that you're going to bring up, if they're going to fail or if they're going to stick. You have to try a bunch of new things. So I do think the ability to be innovative is very much so critical to the role. And that kind of goes hand in hand with being a risk taker. Because again, you are pushing the needle. And I love using that phraseology because I mean, you know, you're really pushing people as well into trying to change their mentality, change the way that they've always done business. And so that is also taking a risk because you don't know how people are going to react to that. So I think being innovative, also being a risk taker, I think it's also super important for you to be a team builder because you're only going to be as good as the team that you have that's going to buy into the new diversity and inclusion policies or programs that you're going to put out for your organization. So you can't do this work alone. Whereas, you know, a chief financial officer, you know, you come up and you say, this is going to be the new way that we're going to do our accounting, or this is the new way that your check requests come in and everyone just deals with it and they fall in line. Well, this is a bit more amorphous, right? Because you're trying to change someone's mindset and how open they are to working with people who don't look like them or changing the way that they do our hiring practices and changing the way people think when they ask interview questions that's hard. And so you really are going to have to really build some team around that. And so I think that team building is also super critical. The last, a little bit controversial there though, I think is that you have to be a disruptor because the chief diversity officer is not someone who can just sit and rubber stamp things and say, oh, this is going well. Oh, this is great. And pat people on the back. You really have to be the disruptor. And so what I mean by that is, you know, when you when you invite a guest over to your home, you know, guests come in, they just compliment you on how great your home looks and, you know, they sit there and they enjoy the meal that you prepared for them. But when you invite family over, you know, family, they open up your cupboards and they take their shoes off and get comfortable. The chief diversity officer has to be like that family. Right. And they have to be pulling open the cupboards and seeing what's going on behind the closed doors. And that is going to force people to have to talk about some things they wouldn't ordinarily talk about. And those things are very sensitive subjects, right? When you're discussing systemic problems in an organization or, or in society, it's hard to talk about racism. It's hard to talk about bias and privilege and making people more comfortable with having those uncomfortable conversations is extremely, extremely critical to being an effective CDO in my opinion. So I would say you have to be a disruptor, you have to be a team builder, a risk taker, and also innovative.
0: Excellent. This question ties in nicely with the purview of the CDO role and was submitted by a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Keisha Jones. Yes. Yeah. So she asked, do CDOs have real latitude to make changes or are there boundaries within which they have to operate, thus significantly limiting their effectiveness in organizations?
1: Well, of course there are boundaries. Uh, <laughs> number one, you have to remember, of course, again, that it is a business and that there may be budgetary restrictions. So. With this being a new role for many organizations or even a new line item, not having any kind of past performance for how these diversity programs do may impact whether or not you're written into the budget. And so you may have all these grandiose ideas as to programs you want to launch and things that you want to do or speakers you want to bring in, but you're constrained financially. So of course, that's going to be a boundary that you have to work within. But I do think that any C-suite position is going to have the power to really influence the overall workplace culture. And the diversity officer is no different, in my opinion. I think that your latitude to be able to make change, that really comes from the buy-in that you can gain. And so in talking about really being a team builder in the organization, I think that you're going to have to really start with the top leadership and then work your way down. The way that I approach it is I make sure that I have the buy-in of our firm president and our chairperson of our board, and our COO. I think that's essential. So that when I roll out a new program or a new procedure that I want the firm to, to latch onto, I'm letting them know, hey, the top management of this organization has already bought into this. And essentially, they're behind me in having everyone else fall in line on this new idea. And so that, for me, is how I'm able to really affect some change. Now, I think it's absolutely important that slowly but surely you end up separating yourself. And so then, of course, you can independently communicate with the organization without having to you know, attach your name to other executives in the organization. But initially, I think you need that support from the top executives in order for you to really make some change. And they're the ones who are going to let you know, you know, whether you are going outside of those boundaries that we have for you and your job, or whether you're still working within them. So I think there's latitude, but this job is definitely not for the timid or the faint heart. You know, you've got to be someone who is willing to, if you want to make that change, you've got to be someone who is willing to talk about some, again, some very sensitive topics and also someone who's willing to speak up when things are going wrong. No one really comes and taps the chief diversity officer because everything is going great. Uh, People tap the chief diversity officer because they want to make sure that we are continuing to progress. And so if you're going to progress, then you're going to have to have someone who's going to do a deep dive into how are we running this organization.
0: Right. So you bring up a great point because even though the title is chief diversity officer, it is not necessarily a C-suite position in all organizations. So when we talk about boundaries and latitudes, that's probably one that many CDOs have to deal with because they may not be considered a chief you know, executive or at this chief C-suite level.
1: And, you know, I think that the title that you give to your diversity professional is important. Again, I think, you know, depending upon the industry, I think it is important. And I think it's important because you have to know the people in the organization and how they're going to react to certain individuals, you know? And so attorneys... Very much so. <laughs> Take direction from the people who are at the, quote, top of the organization. And so, you know, you have your partners and then you get into your C-suite level people and you have your board that governs the entire firm. Those are the people who are going to be able to really influence the entire firm. If you just came and named someone the you know, director of diversity, it would seem like it was, would be suggestions on things that we should do in the organization as opposed to, no, this is the new direction that we are going to go in the organization.
0: So what advice do you have for those people who they're not in a law firm setting, right? And they're not necessarily at the C-suite level in the organizations, but they are, in essence, the chief diversity officer for the organization. What advice would you give them to try to navigate those roles?
1: Well, I wouldn't really, you know, I wouldn't quibble about the actual title unless you are noticing that there's not the level of respect that you are being able to attain from the individuals in your organization. I would really look at the interplay that you already have because you likely already have a set of directors, right? You likely have a director of HR or you have a director of marketing and really see how people take direction from those individuals. And if that works well for your organization, then I don't think there's a problem with having your title as, you know, just the director of diversity. But if you are in an organization where essentially, you know, attorneys, much like I'm sure, you know, doctors or any other industry where you have people who are professionals who are kind of operating in silos, right? We're all trying to go out and get our own clients and work on our book of business. You don't really have this huge hierarchical setup in the organization. And so it's kind of like you've got the management and then you just got everybody else. And so I think it's really important for you to examine kind of how your organization is structured to find out whether the other people who are driving change in the way that the organization is managed, are they C-suite level or are they directors? And that should really kind of dictate how you give nomenclature to the diversity professional.
0: Okay. I want to get back real quick to your specific role as CDO within Archer. Yeah. So you played a major role in getting Archer to commit to the Mansfield Rule 3.0. So please explain to our listeners what this is and the steps you took to realize this accomplishment. And what advice do you have for other CDOs or leaders who need to take on a major DEI initiative?
1: Great. Yeah. So last year, our firm, we decided we were going to participate in Mansfield certification. And so Mansfield is this program that's run through Diversity Labs. And so Diversity Labs has this goal of increasing diversity in law firm leadership and governance. So not just generally increasing the composition of law firms, but really getting into that next layer, which is the leadership within the law firms and the governance. And so they've created this program to become Mansfield certified. And to get that certification, the law firms who participate have to affirmatively consider at least 30% women, people of color, LGBT lawyers, et cetera, for leadership and governance positions in their law firm. So I'm talking about when you are naming people to committee appointments and committee chairs within the law firm, when you're naming department chairs, executive management, hiring partners, when you are promoting partners to become equity partner, and also when you're sending them out for formal pitch opportunities you know, to see who is it that we're putting on the front lines to represent our law firm. You have to make sure that you are at least considering 30% women, people of color, LGBT individuals, et cetera, in that candidate pool. And this is really just to make sure that you are being inclusive because, you know, oftentimes people have go-tos, right? And so if you're coming up with a pitch team to go out and get new business and we're going to go meet with Dr. Holmes, you know, we have our go-to people who always go out and do this. But why don't we expand this and why don't we start to think about people who we don't ordinarily think of? Now we're chipping away at that bias there that we didn't even know existed, right? And so we're saying, hey, just as easily as Lloyd could go do it, I'm sure a woman could go and do it. Maybe she could even be better. Not a thought right there, right? That they could be better at this particular position or role than you would be. And so it just gets that conversation going. And it also serves as a, a bit of a checks and balances because there are not going to be any significant decisions that are made in these law firms without it coming by the chief diversity officer. And so that's really huge, right? You think about it when you're going to name the next person who's going to be the president of this firm, or you're going to name the next chairperson of litigation. You have to make sure that in that candidate pool, who you were considering, at least 30% of them were diverse individuals, but they were women. And so that requires the chief diversity officer or someone on their team to go through and look at those candidates and really do some digging and find out why is it that we're not considering other people? Why is it a homogenous group here that we're looking at? And I love that about that program. And so after you do it for one year, if you are able to go through with all the categories and you've considered at least thirty percent, you can become Mansfield certified, and so that's really really important for clients because it lets our clients know that you're not just going around saying that you are serious about diversity. You know, you actually can look at the results and say, okay, they actually mean what they're talking about.
0: Okay, so that's excellent. Congratulations for that major win. Thank you. Do you know where they got the thirty percent from?
1: The statistics show that you need to thirty uh, percent is around that marker where you can start to chip away at tokenism and, you know, so now just saying, okay, we're going to come up with this completely homogenous group and now let's throw Oscar in there as well. Well, no, let's not just throw one person in there just so we can say, oh, we considered one person who was different. Let's actually have a good representative sample really of what the organization or what the profession should look like. So it was really to get away from just having that one token person that's normally thrown into the candidate pool but to really have a really robust and substantive amount of people that you can really choose from.
0: Right. Clearly, this role is really important for people to have in organizations. It may be stepping stones in terms of people's careers, but some people, particularly people who are underrepresented in organizations, may be a bit hesitant to take on this type of role. So what advice can you give the people if they're not within 30 percent? They could be the only one. So they may be seen as a token but they may be tapped into this role. What type of advice would you give those people who may be a bit hesitant to take on a chief director officer role in their organization because of those considerations?
1: Well, you know, of course, there's going to be, you know, some hesitation and I get it, but, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Right. If you are going to be a leader, I mean, there are going to be some things that are going to, again, make even you uncomfortable in being in that role. And so you also have to think about it as if you really care about Number one, the organization generally, or if you care about your entire industry, if you really want to kind of effect some change across the board, it has to start somewhere. And so, of course, you can be the person who sits back and observes or you can be the person who drives that change. And so if you really want to be a catalyst for that change, I think that there's no greater role than being that chief diversity officer, again, because you're so innovative. And you don't really have this book that says, this is kind of how you have to conform and fall in line. I'm sure that if you went by and looked at what are the strategic plans or what are the next 10 things on the agenda for a CDO at 10 different organizations, all of those maps are going to look different. Right. All of them are going to look different. But yes, you are going to be faced with a lot of criticism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're going to be faced with a lot of resistance because people don't like change. People don't like change. And the whole point of the chief diversity officer position is that you are a catalyst for change, good change. Right. And convincing people in an organization that this is good change, I mean, that's, that's most of the battle right there. Once you can convince them of that, they'll just get in line behind, you know, anything that you roll out. But letting them know this is a good thing. Letting, Mansfield is a good thing. It's a good thing for us to consider women and people of color when we're talking about naming who's going to be the, uh, the president of this organization. That's a good thing. Right. Good thing.
0: Again, you've been a successful attorney, and this is a very challenging role. So let's get a little bit more personal. So what are some things that you've been disappointed about that have been challenges, perhaps, that you were not able to accomplish in this role thus far?
1: I can tell you right off the bat, personally, I'm an impatient person. (laughs) (laughs) I am too. (laughs) But change takes time change takes time right so you're not going to be able to roll out a new program or a new initiative and think that you know you can kind of link your eyes and then next thing you know the the makeup of the firm is going to look like you know the united colors of benetton it's not going to be that way it's going to be a bit slow you're chipping away at it and for me really coming to grips with the fact that you're in this for the long term you're in this for the long run you cannot think that you're going to be able to make some decisions today and that you're going to be able to see that change tomorrow it is going to take some time. Right. It's going to take time to get people to buy into it. It's going to take time for it to actually come to fruition. And then it's going to take time, of course, for you to be able to have that bubble all the way up through and get to the leadership. Right. And, and I don't mean for the leadership to buy in. I mean for it to change the composition of the leadership. And you know, we can talk about that forever, but that gets into pipeline issues and everything like that. So again, it's going to take some time, but you got to have folks who are in the trenches doing the work If you want to be able to see the fruits of your labor, some five or 10 years from
0: now. Right, right. So I'm going to throw out some statistics now. So in a study surveying chief diversity officers done by Whit Kiefer, most felt that they had the right background to prepare them for the role and that they had support from their top leaders. So that's a good thing. However, 84 percent said that the NI strategic plan was not in place when they took the job. And although 59% said that their responsibilities were spelled out clearly when they took the job, 60% of them stated that their responsibilities changed significantly after they took the job. So what advice would you give CDOs in terms of creating the diversity and inclusion strategic plan for their organizations and dealing with the significant role changes that many of them stated occurred after they took the job?
1: Wow. Well, that's alarming. Okay, so... I would start, and again, I've had this great fortune right, to be able to be the first chief diversity officer in my organization. And so if you can, I would say to really push for writing your own job description. Because if you can write your own job description, that really sets your goals for what you're going to do and what you need to accomplish in your job just out the gate. And then your strategic plan, I believe, can flow from that. So Yes, it has to be fluid and yes it has to adapt, but I think that it can be tied directly into what it is that you're supposed to be responsible for every single day. And how you carry out that job description is just exactly into what the bullets are in your strategic plan. I think that it's most of the battle is in knowing that it will change. in the same way that a budget changes, you know, I'm sure that CFOs put together their budgets and then you have no idea when there's going to be some kind of an economic crisis that hits. Right. Uh, Speaking of that, diversity and inclusion is not a revenue generating role if you look at it on its face. Yeah, you're bringing in people who could become revenue generating, but this is not a role where the work that I do is going to end up bringing in dollars in the door. Right. And so a down economy may end up impacting diversity and inclusion. If you have a hiring freeze in an organization, of course, that's going to impact your diversity and inclusion efforts. But I think you just have to learn how you're going to roll with the punches, how you're going to adapt. And you have to, again, be innovative. You know, a hiring freeze doesn't mean that we can't promote our diverse employees, or a limited budget doesn't mean that we can't still have seminars or roundtable discussions and still begin to change people's mindsets about diversity and inclusion. At the end of the day, whether or not the strategic plan, you know, whether you stick to it, whether it's fluid and it you know has to get amended, et cetera, I think if you remember that at the end of the day, this is, again, this is good change, and that in an industry where you are client serving, clients want this, and many of them demand it. You know, I always say it's my moral obligation to do this work, but it's right. a business case for diversity as well. And that cannot be forgotten. If your clients are demanding this, if they're saying, you know, why do my attorneys that you staff on my matters all look the same? Why do you never send any women to court on my cases? You can now begin to make that business case for diversity. And now that does become revenue generating, right? And now you can directly tie in how our initiatives are helping us to keep dollars in the door or how it may potentially help us to gain new dollars in the future. And I just think that the chief diversity officer, as the business may change, or as the needs of the clients may change, the chief diversity officer needs to be able to adapt to that change, just like any other manager or executive in an organization.
0: Okay, so that's good. But the reality is, for them, they may have been sold a bill of goods and signed up for a job that they thought they would love, but end up not loving the job because it changed so much. I think these statistics are for people who were not able to write their own job description. They took on a role and then it was like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not doing that. You're doing something else.
1: And that's fine because, I mean, you will still find out some of those things as you go along. I think that it's really critical. One of the things I love about the way that I have set up my role is that I have these regularly scheduled meetings basically every week. They're supposed to be every other, but with our COO of our firm. And so I'm able to talk to our COO not only about the things that I'm experiencing from the DNI standpoint, but also generally how the firm is operating. And this is not so that I get to the end of the road and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm getting so much resistance here and this is not working right. I'm going straight to the very top of the organization every other week talking about what I'm encountering and also talking about what are the plans for the firm. Is the firm thinking about expanding or is the firm thinking about naming another managing partner and how can I be helpful in helping with that recruitment strategy? How can we make sure that diversity is really a part of that conversation as well? There are going to be some things that you just don't know because you're not in that role yet. But once you get into that role, you have to make sure that you're pulling back the curtain at every juncture, right? In the finances, in the HR, in all of it, so that you can really be there and have that seat at the table and have your voice heard. I don't think that it does anyone good for you to kind of throw your hands in the air and say, oh my gosh, this is too hard. or This is not really what I signed up for because, you know, you still have an organization or you still have an industry that needs this work. Again, if we're going to be able to open up opportunities for other people who are people of color or women, et cetera, then we're going to have to make sure that we continue to advance this work. It is not always easy to be in this role. In fact, it's rarely easy. But again, that's why I say this is not for the faint of heart. Absolutely. This is for someone who is going to be able to roll with the punches and someone who got some tough skin.
0: I totally agree with you. Of course, most organizations love to talk about metrics. Uh, you talked about the business case, which I don't necessarily always <laughs> get down with the business case, but I totally understand it.
1: Why <laughs> <laughs> many people do, right? but sometimes it's, it's an entree to get your foot in the door, right?
0: Right, right. I totally get it. This could be a good or bad thing when we talk about metrics, particularly when we think about DNI issues. Can you tell us what types of metrics CDOs should consider and when metrics are helpful and when these metrics might be hurtful to organizations?
1: Metrics are good. Metrics are definitely good, but again, you need some realistic time frames, right? Before you can start to measure the performance of the CDO, certainly, or of the CDO's diversity and inclusion efforts. So CDO can't come in and then six months later everyone is wondering, well, are you doing your job? Is this stuff working? You know, because we don't have any black women on the board of directors, I mean, that's when it becomes hurtful, right? right. you Begin to now publish statistics and you didn't give us enough time to really see the plan all the way through. I think you have to tie it back to your strategic plan and then your strategic plan, you know, if you're going to make some smart goals, you need to talk about what is the long-term plan for those goals. And so for instance, at our law firm, the summer associate program is a part of my strategic plan for the firm. And so for me, again, it's really near and dear to my heart because I'm a past summer associate and that's how I got in the door but i believe that recruiting at the lowest level and really begin to shift that pipeline right there at the front door that's the fulcrum for diversity to end up becoming realized in an organization and if you look at that long term you know you look at these individuals who are coming in the door fresh out of law school for instance they've got a 10 year trajectory and they're going to be your new batch of partners so it is extremely hard for you to go in and change you know the composition of what the partnership looks like in an organization. Well these people are partners and what are you gonna do? Vote them all out and or vote in some new random people who haven't proven themselves in the firm? No, not exactly. But what we can do is look ahead and we can say, you know what, looking at our lowest level ranks right now, and if we promote them the way that we should and we're gonna keep them here and have our great retention that we should because we have a CDO who's on top of that, eight to ten years from now, the entire composition of this leadership in this organization is going to change. And so for me, I've been able to just measure it based upon my summer associate program. And so I know that after having run that program for the past three years, we've had 72% people of color come through the door at Archer and 65% women. And so that is when the metrics for me are really, really helpful. Because again, I'm looking at who's coming in the door. And now once I get them here, I have to focus on my retention efforts. And then I focus on promotion. Trying to go in and try to chisel away at the top. I mean, you're just not going to be successful. I'll say that flat out. Right. You're not going to be successful if you think you're going to walk into a board of directors meeting of any organization and say, "Okay, you, you, and you, you're out. I'm replacing you with women." That's not going to happen. Right? It's not going to happen.
0: So I totally understand the pipeline, uh, you know, strategy. But the reality is, people don't always just stay. That's right. With an organization, that's the retention piece, and and many organizations can't retain people. There should be some other strategies as well as bringing people who are not at the beginning level as well into organizations, but tapping more senior people to actually come in. You know, we do it a lot in academia tap and you know, more senior people for different roles. Are you doing any of that at Archer as well?
1: Correct. We are. And that's a part of Mansfield as well, your lateral partner hiring. That's also very much so examined. And you want to make sure that in doing that, that you are also looking to get more diverse individuals, more women who are coming in laterally. But then you also look at just the organization. I'm sorry, the industry overall, right? So the practice of law is 85% white. When you then get into law firm partners. You're trying to find out how many of those are people of color, I mean, you're talking about less than 10%. Right. So now you're talking about this really, really small demographic of people, industry wide, and you're trying to take these, what I call unicorns, <laughs> and take them from an organization that is likely treating them very, very well because they want to make sure that they keep them and trying to move them around. That becomes really hard. It does become really, really hard. Now, People, of course, are attracted to organizations that can show that they have a for real, firm commitment to diversity. So people will come if you are doing, you know, what you're supposed to be doing and you're showing them that diversity is really a part of what your organization believes in. But it is very, very hard to get people to lateral over into those positions of leadership. It's extremely hard. Gotcha. Now, I'm not saying that you don't focus on it. You absolutely focus on it, but I know for a fact that you can get people at those very bottom levels. And if you can get them there, and the only organization they ever know is an organization where diversity is talked about constantly, where they've got face-to-face time with someone in the C-suite who comes and just asks them, how are things going? How are you doing? Are you improving? Are you progressing? That makes people feel valued. And when they feel valued, then they'll stay. And if they can stay long enough, we can promote them.
0: Right. This question is from Dr. William Luce. He asks often the phrase a seat at the table is seen as a victory in the world of diversity and inclusion. So in your opinion, what are the next steps once an individual enters a position with decision-making authority?
1: Well, the next step, once you've got that seat at the table, you need to gain the respect of the others around the table. Because of course, you know, you are the new face at the table. And so you need to show that you deserve to be there. And you do that by learning the business. You gotta know the business and that you're not just there to simply shove diversity and inclusion down their throats with complete disregard for the business. You need to talk about how they go hand in hand and how diversity and inclusion can improve the business. You're not there to be a seat filler. you got that seat to raise your hand, to pound your fist on the table, to ask questions. I think it's a waste if you simply get there and you're just there for informational purposes only, and you're just watching everybody else talk about all the important issues. You need to be the one who is asking questions, probably the most questions, because oftentimes, You being that person who talks about diversity and inclusion, you're going to be the only person who is raising the issue of diversity and inclusion. So, before we kind of go and and we take a motion or before an individual resolution is passed, before we bang that gavel, why didn't we consider this individual? Why didn't we consider uh, partnering with that organization? Why are all of our dollars, you know, why aren't we spending more dollars toward these organizations that promote diversity and inclusion? Those are the important questions that need to be asked. But again, it ties into knowing the business and being able to show the value of diversity and inclusion to your business.
0: So remind us again, so how long have you been CDO at Archer?
1: 2018 is when I got the position.
0: Okay, so almost like two years now. Right. So do you see yourself as still the person, the only person bringing up these issues, or have you had enough success such that there's other people now? So you're not the only spokesperson for diversity, equity, and inclusion, but there's other executive leaders who are bringing up these issues
1: there are others. And the really good strategic point about that is thinking about having a diversity committee. And on my diversity committee, it's not simply made up of the people of color in the organization. That's often like the go-to, right? You just think, okay, let me add everybody brown right. and throw them yeah. on the diversity committee because of course they have to know about diversity because you know they're black. No, no. On my diversity committee, I have the decision maker at the firm. That way that when we are talking about new policies and programs you want to implement, We're talking about the different ways in which it affects the business overall. So the hiring chair was on my committee, uh, the personnel chairs on my committee, the firm president on my committee, the COO of the firm on my committee. That way, I've got kind of already my allies who are right there as I'm pitching new ideas, as we're deciding we're going to go in this direction, as we're deciding to sign on to Mansfield. I've kind of already got my people who are going to be my champion who are going to go and kind of help proselytize for me. Um, And so it's not just always Lloyd talking about diversity and inclusion and the importance of it. You've got the firm president doing it. You've got the COO doing it. You've got the people who set your compensation, people who do hiring and are focusing on that. So I think that's very, very important for you to have that committee that is assisting the chief diversity officer or whoever the diversity professional is, because I don't think that you can do it alone. And if you approach it in that regard, people are going to always just think of it as kind of like, oh, here we are doing Lloyd's thing again. No, no, no. It's not a Lloyd thing. This is a firm thing. And we've got the buy-in from all these other individuals.
0: Great, great. So this is a really great question that was submitted by a listener, Dr. Jason Rivera. It's a deep question. He asks, often we use diversity as a shield to talk about systemic and structural racism. In this process, we fail to recognize or acknowledge the role that whiteness plays in perpetuating and sustaining structural oppression and racist practices. So how should we as individuals and organizations deal with this?
1: Not just a good question. That's a tough question. Uh,
0: <laughs> right?
1: You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it head on. I think it does a disservice to anybody for us to take real issues like that, important issues like that, and to beat around the bush. You've got to just go ahead and have those tough conversations. Whether that means we need to have a roundtable discussion, or we need to bring in a consultant like you know Doctor Holmes and facilitate a conversation around it. I think you need to really just get it on the table because there are some people out there. are just doing this unconsciously and you know if you give everybody the benefit of the doubt you're saying that they're doing it and they don't really intend the harmful consequences of their actions right but privilege is real bias is real racism is real and the chief diversity officer has to be able to bring those real issues to the forefront and make sure they're being discussed and that they're on the agenda you got to continue to be that disruptor you got to show them the statistics numbers don't lie so if you show them that our hiring practices over the past X number of years have favored only one demographic, or you show them that the top leadership is not reflective of the entire organization or the clients that we serve, then you can create a plan of action and hold people accountable, but it doesn't start unless we have that conversation. I know it's super tough to talk about that because you know you often are going to be facing some people and you're kind of calling out a group in which they belong, right? So if you're talking about whiteness in an organization like a law firm, I told you that entire industry is 85% white that's tough. That's tough. right? But you got to deal with it. You got to have that conversation. And oftentimes it may be hard for you to do it with your colleagues. And that's why I said, don't underestimate the power of bringing in a consultant to facilitate that conversation and talk about how really other organizations are dealing with it. And you can just learn from the others in your industry.
0: That's a great point. This is not an attack on chief diversity officers themselves, but Zane Kamara asked, Uh why aren't we seeing more results from diversity work? (laughs) Many more organizations are named chief diversity officers. Some of them have been there for five, 10 years now. But she asks, why don't we see more results from this work? And I'm just saying that it's not an attack. I'm, we're not trying to attack chief diversity officers at all.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. But it's a good question because it depends on the industry for me. And I think if you talk about gender diversity, for instance, and you talk about that in engineering or you know any of the STEM areas, that's going to be hard because there's a pipeline issue there, right? If you go into the colleges, you're going to tend to see more males who are majoring in engineering or in STEM than you have women. You're playing with the hand that you're dealt, but of course, you have to still make sure that with the hand that we're dealt, we're making the right decisions. And so we're now we're hiring those individuals who come out and we're giving them a fair shot and we're promoting them, even though they're not a part of this homogenous group that we've always looked at as to be an engineer. And I'm sure the same that there are some other historically majorly represented groups in academia or other fields. And that those groups that tend to be, you know, homogeneous. I think that CDOs are making strides and that there are results, but you, you have to be realistic. You're not gonna be able to look at every major law firm that has a chief diversity officer and wonder why they have not named a black man to become the firm president of every one of these firms. Well, that's that's unrealistic because if you look at it, we just don't have enough numbers to even do that. It's just not possible. But we can make strides, we can make incremental change. I think that you have to give people time. Look at their strategic plan and see if they are actually starting to check those things off. On the strategic plan, that they're working on them, people are buying into them. You can't write them off and say that there is no change that's happening, but you got to hold them accountable. And so not just holding the organization accountable, hold the chief diversity officer accountable as well.
0: Oh, so that's a really good point about holding the CDO accountable. Yeah. I was just going to ask the question, when should a CDO be fired? Oof.
1: You said there was another tough question.
0: Earlier. That's the tough question, <laughs> right? A tough question, right? Because the reality is, we're not necessarily firing chief executives.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I know how to answer that. I do know how to hold them accountable, though. Okay. You know, the chief diversity officer should be hailed in front of the organization that they are leading, and they should have to talk about how we are improving. How have the new ideas, these innovative ideas that you've come up with, how have they helped our organization? For me. I present each quarter before our partnership, the entire partnership. And I get up there and I talk about everything that I'm doing, the way in which they can play a role in it. And I also give them the numbers. The numbers don't lie. This is how we are improving, point blank. You should have to go in front of the board of directors. You should have to have those meetings with the COO. Maybe I can reframe your question and say, when should a CDO leave an organization? Either when you don't believe that you can affect any additional change, any further change, or when you just find that this organization is just not going to really be able to move the needle for whatever reason, right? Maybe it's budget. Maybe it's because of the attitudes in the organization. But if you're not going to be able to make that change, it's going to make you look bad as a CDO gotcha. if you cannot effectuate that change. So then it, maybe it's time for you to go ahead and go somewhere else. But fire. Oh my gosh, Oscar.
0: <laughs> right, right. So that raises another question. Should the CDO always be the person? Given these reports and give these numbers, or should it be integrated throughout the C-suite team? You know, should the CEO be the person sharing these reports and numbers, or the CFO, or, you know, any other chief executive? At what point should the CEO like relinquish this role and, and actually have it be a shared role across the chief executives?
1: There are times when that's appropriate. And I can tell you that but for instance, when you are a law firm and you're talking about acquiring a new law firm or you're talking about merging with another law firm. Now that is something that you know your firm president, CEO or COO needs to come and talk about the acquisition of this new law firm and how with us making this decision to acquire this new law firm, we're going to look at the composition of that law firm and how it's going to affect our diversity numbers or maybe you know the market that they're in and how that's going to increase the diversity of our clients. Those need to be conversations that are had with the chief diversity officer behind the scenes but I do think that it's appropriate at those junctures in other areas where you've got to get somebody else up to talk about diversity. Again, that's how you show that it's woven throughout the fabric of the firm. It cannot simply be that the chief diversity officer is always getting up and kind of just preaching DI, DI. You've got to get it to the point where the hiring chair is talking about it and the personnel chair is talking about it. And of course, you got to get the CEO talking about it.
0: Right. So this is a question from an Anonymous Submitter. How do you deal with the argument that diversity initiatives themselves are racist, separatists, or segregationist? Hmm. You know, we hear this question a lot, uh, or the statement a lot, actually, that if you do something for the women or you do something for people of color, then that's racist itself. So how would a CEO deal with these types of, you know, arguments that people throw out in organizations? I I don't deal with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's flawed reasoning. I am a proud graduate of a historically Black college, and I've heard that before, even in talking about HBCUs. My gosh, you know, de facto HBCUs, you know, are segregationists because you're just putting all the black people over in one corner. Racism and segregation, they make the playing field uneven. And so diversity is working to level that playing field. And so, no, you're not trying to create a separate path to partnership for people who are into these diverse categories. No, you're just trying to level the playing field so that they have the opportunity to be able to compete and to get those positions. Yeah, racist and separatist and, and segregationist. No, I, I don't give much time and attention to that. Those are people who need to go back to you know diversity 101 and talk about how <laughs> they've really got some biases that they're struggling with because they are pretty much resistant, in my opinion. Those are people who are just generally resistant to diversity and inclusion, and they look at it as a threat to whatever their positions are. Because otherwise, I don't see how you can look at this as anything else other than good change.
0: I think that's a great answer. I totally agree with you. So what future projects do you have in the works? What are some things that we should be on the lookout for that's coming from Lloyd Freeman, either at Archer or in the community? Because you're always into something.
1: (laughs) Of course, getting Mansfield certified is is big on my list. The certification comes out in the summertime. So that's when we'll be um, held accountable for those 30% check marks there. We hosted our first ever diversity retreat uh, last fall. In doing that, you know, we had two days worth of workshops and seminars, and we had some consultants come in and talk to our firm and really start a lot of good conversations. And I want to continue those throughout this year. We may have to do some of them virtually, but I want to make sure that we continue those conversations. And by doing so, I want to go deeper. You know, I want to get into talking about the, the microaggressions and talking about imposter syndrome and really educate the masses on what diverse individuals face. And I think that by doing that, you know, you can now begin to make this concerted effort. You know, that's everybody jointly. Concerted effort to make our workplaces more culturally competent. And really that is a big part of the goal because if everyone at least understands this stuff, then they can start to put it into their daily actions. And so really going deeper, doing some more thought leadership, you know, I'm always looking for new speaking engagements and chances to write articles, et cetera. But as it relates to my firm, I want to go deeper on the uh, the conversations that we were having, host some more seminars, some more roundtable discussions and really begin to change a lot more of people's mindsets, not because they don't understand the importance of diversity, but just because I want them to be able to see things through the lens of women and diverse individuals as well.
0: Well, Lloyd, thank you so much for gracing our guest chair and talking to us. I'm sure our listeners have learned so much from you about the work of a chief diversity officer. And again, we wish you so much success in your role as a partner and CDO at Archer. Oscar,
1: thank you. I appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable rating and review so that we'll make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, Yober Yogurts. Please try their drinks. I guarantee you will love them. Check out where you can purchase them by visiting their website at www.yoberyogurts.com. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love.